we're in the next batch now. Some good ones in here. Oh, I know. Oh, I, you know what? I'm telling you, Jason, I, I love the way these shows are turning out. I mean it. Uh, I'm really into it. Every one of them is turning out different, but it's been a lot of fun. Like I go in, I'm not like, oh, this is what this one's going to be like. I kind of think about the script and I, I listen to what everybody said and, and they're all, you know, they're all similar, but they're all a little bit different too. It's fun. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I love my little, I just popped in once on the G3 Power Mac and I was like, you know what? I, I love that it was there. I don't have a lot to say, but I have a little bit to say about the way that it doesn't really look pro. Everybody's like, yep. oh, it was so fun. And I was like, I wish I could pop in. And there I am. <laughs> and then you were, right? How about that? You're right. like, I don't have a much I don't have a lot to say about this one, but and then you said it. And I'm like, all right, that's good. Because I was like, where's John in this? It's like, oh, he said this one thing. I'm gonna put that in there. I'm gonna write about the I'm using this crazy program called Descript to edit those, or at least to do the initial edit. And it's that's the program where you feed it audio and it transcribes it all. Uh, and then it's a word yeah, processor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I've heard about this. But I can this. literally take every like everything that everybody says about one computer and put it in a document. Uh, and it's all the different people are in that document. And then I can write my script around it and I can copy and paste little lines from everybody. And then when it's all done, I export it and it goes to logic. And then I, I can clean it up in logic. It's pretty amazing because it means that, that I can edit amazing. it like the report card kind of, right? Where I can just take quotes and move right. things around, uh, which is great because uh, I don't know how I would be able to do it otherwise <laughs> it would be a lot if i had to remember where people said certain things no. at certain times it wouldn't have worked so it's pretty cool yeah you'd end up with the, one of those conspiracy board conspiracy oh, theorist boards with strings and yarn and mm -hmm. well i mean the, and the fact is there'd be one i like i could swear he said this but i don't know where it is so i'm just gonna <laughs> not put it in there and not worry about it all right, so uh, the Mac Portable is on my list, and the PowerBook 100, which is just sort of the Mac Portable in a, um, like Sony took it and shrunk it down a little bit, and uh, and it was never really, it was really more like the PowerBook version of the Mac Portable, whereas the other PowerBook 100s, which will appear higher on my list, uh, were different. But but the Mac Portable is really the thing, right? It weighed a ton, it was luggable, it was more like an Osborne than it was like a modern laptop. And it was, uh, even at the time, everybody's like, mm, I don't know, Apple. And uh, and very quickly, Apple sort of had to make the PowerBooks. And they, they, like, they got it right the second time. It would, and it was crazy expensive. I mean, yep. it, it was just insanely expensive. And I just remember thinking, like, who has the money for this? And I remember, uh, the, I don't even know how I remember his name because I'm not that great at remembering fringe basketball players from other teams. But Boston Celtics point guard D. Brown, uh, I, I remember reading was it turns out he's a computer enthusiast, and I was like, hey, you don't really see a lot of that these days. I love basketball, I love computers, and it turns out he's a Mac enthusiast. And then I found out that he traveled on road games with a Macintosh portable, and I'm like, oh, that's who can afford one, <laughs> a professional basketball player. <laughs> yeah, it it was, and, and the size wouldn't matter to him. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it it uh, it's so I have I have one, I bought one, really for this project, I bought one on eBay. And you know the thing that you would like about it, and this doesn't get talked about enough, but I, I'm going to write about it, is this is the no compromises computer, right? So it's got the full-size SCSI on the back and a full-size – it's like ridiculous for a laptop to have these. But for a luggable, they're like, no, we're going we're gonna to do no compromises. And the screen is, uh, is a, an active matrix screen. It's really good. Yeah. But the keyboard, man – it's the Alps switches. It yeah. is the classic Mac keyboard in a laptop. And I love the PowerBook 100 series. I think it was brilliant. I think it changed how laptops are, are shaped and how we think of them today. But you compare the keyboard on the Mac Portable to the keyboard on the PowerBook, and it's not even close. Like the, it is, Apple just said, you know what? We're going to just put a complete no compromises keyboard on this thing. I have never touched a Mac portable. That is, this is, I, I know that I haven't, and I've always wanted to because I knew that I would like to at least just type on one. I'd like to play with one that doesn't even turn on, just to click. Yeah, that's kind of insane when you think about it, and it really is. Sometimes a name really does tell you everything you need to know about it, and it really was. It wasn't what we think of today as portability. It was yeah. it was a different definition of the word portable. It was a full Macintosh, and you could fold it up and yeah. 
you could argue that other than the battery, like I don't know if you ever had one of these. I had a Mac SE, and I had a, one of those little zipper carrying cases. You could literally like put it in the overhead bin on an airplane, right. or what, and, and it had a shoulder strap, and like that was that was not much less portable right. than the Mac Portable, other than the fact that it had a battery. Right. I mean, it wasn't a notebook, it wasn't a laptop. They didn't call it that. They called it portable, so you could move it. Is basically what it meant, right? And you didn't need a separately connectable pointer device, and you didn't right. need a separate keyboard to also put in. Like, if yeah. you start comparing the size of a standalone SE classic size CRT Mac with the Mac Portable, you can get you you can cheat a little bit by forgetting that you have to take a keyboard with you yep. and a mouse, and your mouse. Et yeah, but it, it's, I mean, even at the time, looking through the articles at the time, everybody, uh, it was it was going toward laptops. Now, the laptops were all compromised, right? But it was, everything was going toward laptops, and this was a late luggable. And it's like Apple was a little bit too late, and even though they hit it, finally, they kind of they kind of missed the target because they were. I mean, I hate to say they were skating to where the puck was, but that's kind of it. Like they yeah. they were they were too late to the party for the last go round. And then the PowerBook 100s, they were like on to the party. They were on right. They they were they were skating to where the puck would be then. But this this was a miss. They like they they hurried it up and they missed it. You have to think in hindsight. I was, when we first started talking about it, I was going to be more generous to it and say, well, nobody knew how to make a laptop then. But then there's a part of you that really has to look at it and say, this is exactly what they missed about Steve Jobs, and it was sort of the that in in that thousand no's for every yes this one should have been a no maybe yeah. even late in the game where there should have been someone who's willing to say this is amazing it's it is a truly it is a it's a it's a real product it is useful this is not something we should ship this isn't yep. we should go back to the drawing board and it doesn't need to be tweaked it needs what actually did happen just going you know there was no second <laughs> attempt nope. at it right and and it wasn't like the next thing was a 1.1 version or even a 2.0 it was sort of a well let's just create a new category yeah for sure they, they did a like they added a backlight at one point because it wasn't backlit so you could use it anywhere but it needed to yeah. be light well lit because otherwise you wouldn't be able to see it and that cut yeah. that killed the battery life too it's it's sort of like if there had been remember the slide when when the iphone came out and there was like hey maybe we would do this and they made like a an ipod that had a rotary dial yeah right <laughs> it's like yeah what if they had shipped an iphone like that <laughs> right that was the mac yeah. portable it's yeah, portable it's just a kind of a cul-de-sac now. Yeah. And think about that, too, that Apple in that era was, while they're building their own thing, which was great, they're also like, please, Sony, help us make a laptop. Right. And not just build a component, but do all the hard work and yeah. you know, expertise of miniaturizing large components into drastically smaller ones. Yeah. So the more I think about the Mac Portable, the more I'm impressed. It actually takes the that original line of PowerBooks up in my estimation because this was such a misfire, mm. and they righted they righted the ship. They did. They really, they did get it right the next time. But what were they thinking? <laughs> I don't know. That keyboard's great though. I'm telling you. And you could and you could flip you could flip it around so you could have the the trackball on the right or the left. Because this was before the PowerBook, so the, yeah, the, I remember that. There's no 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 space below the keyboard, right? Um, yeah. Anyway, it's weird. Uh, if we ever travel again, I, I and I've got this thing here. I'll try to bring it to you so you can see it. <laughs> All twenty pounds of it. Yeah. Well, sometimes you're sometimes you're here in San Francisco. I'll I'll find a way to print. It, the keyboard's great. It really is. I, I I sat there thinking, well, if I never use this as a laptop, maybe I could just cannibalize the switches out of that <laughs> keyboard. It's really amazing. Um, okay, uh, I'm going to do a thing about the the clones, and it's about power computing because they're the definitive Mac clone maker, I think, and they did marketing and all of that 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 was so good. And I talked to their guy who is their their head of marketing. Um, but like we could also just talk about the clone era more broadly. It is a fascinating period where before Steve Jobs comes back, where Apple Apple seemed to decide that their strategy was going to be. If we let other people make computers, 
it will we will sell more computers. It won't eat away at the Mac. It will expand the the frontiers of the Mac. And I'm not sure that's really how it worked out for them. I've always thought that it was I don't even know that inside Apple that they thought that. I guess that was the story they told, but I really think it was a decision driven more by Wall Street. And I saying something is oh to please Wall Street can have a 100 different reasons, but I think fundamentally at the time Microsoft and Intel were doing so phenomenally well. Intel didn't make consumer products though. And when Microsoft made Windows, which is what everybody knew, and Microsoft dominated the industry, they dominated profits, they were dominating culture, uh, they were just dominant in just about any way they could be. Bill Gates was enormously famous. And the basic idea was, well, if Microsoft can make all this money just licensing their OS and letting PC other companies make the computers. Apple could do the same thing. Apple should do the same thing. And it was hammered for years and years. And it was one of those things. It's like the way politics works, lowercase p, not even in the scheme of governmental affairs, but just anything is political. And this was political. You keep repeating it over and over again. And if you can't come back with a good answer, it just wears you down. And the argument that Apple should license the OS, Mac OS to clone makers went from this is the stupidest idea I've ever heard that everybody agreed to well maybe I don't know <laughs> I, I think that's sort of it it was sort of just they got worn down and and it was like they had no other answers and they're like okay we'll try it also Apple's hardware at this point wasn't very good like right. I mean that that's part of it too is like well maybe other companies will do a better job than Apple at doing this and and they did. I mean, that's the right. truth of it. They they really did. And some of it unfairly because yeah. they didn't they a clone maker could get a hundred uh PowerPC six oh fours from Motorola or, or the, at the fastest speed and sell them, whereas Apple wouldn't, you know, Apple needed a hundred thousand. Right. And so there there were some unfair things, but there's also some fair things that just like Apple's Hardware was uninspired, especially desktop. There were never any clone laptops. Their desktop hardware was uninspired. And it was a, you know, having other people with other ideas come in, like it was exciting because everything was so static at that point. Yeah, they just weren't good at making hardware at the time. And they weren't good at shipping it. And they weren't good at having a clarified product lineup. I mean, it's uh, clearly a recurring theme throughout this whole podcast that there were... <laughs> There was a long stretch there in the 90s where their product matrix was 12-dimensional chess of weird and nobody, people who were diehard fans or even worked at the company couldn't really explain which Performa you should buy. Uh, and, you know, the, the power computing would come out and it was a lot, their, their lineup wasn't just more compelling, it was also easier to understand. Yeah, and they did stuff like they had a they had the PowerWave had a it was the first it was the only Mac ever made or Mac OS compatible computer ever made that had uh, you could have new bus slots and PCI slots so you mm. could like have your old cards and I don't know how well that actually worked but they they went to the trouble of building that and that was an example where Apple wasn't Apple wasn't interested. I could tell, and this is a very John Gruber observation, but I could tell the whole thing was going bad. It was all, the whole thing was going wobbly because all of the keyboards stunk. Apple started making crappy, they went from making the best keyboard they ever made, the Apple Extended Keyboard 2, uh, which even if you don't like it, you have to, I mean, everybody admits it's a very well-made premium keyboard, right? Mm -hmm. And like a replacement retailed for in like the early nineties for like $180, 180 US dollars in early nineties. And it felt like, well, if there was such a thing as a hundred and some dollar keyboard, this would be it to just, just shipping crap keyboards like PCs. Like, where can we save some money? We'll make cheap keyboards. The clones made cheap keyboards. All the keyboards, they were cheap. Yeah. Ugh. It was just a race to the bottom, right? That was the thing. And and there was high-end performance in the power computing stuff, and it would be like, wow, wow, I could save a lot of money and get a, just as fast. And they, and they were stable, right? It was like, you, yeah. you know, it wasn't... It wasn't like, oh, your your Mac would flake out and you'd get, you know, system errors and stuff like that. No, no. they work great, you know. And they were so you could, well made. 
Yeah, they were, and they had the advantage of getting the getting some of the faster chips ahead of Apple because they didn't need them in the same volumes. I mean, that was part of the yeah. game. Mike Rosenfeld told me the power computing stuff too. Like from a marketing standpoint, in an era where Apple, you know, I don't know if you remember this, but like, I did the letters at Mac user letter column. So I literally once a week or once a month, I guess, would take home a, a letter a postal bin full of mail. And open it. <laughs> and I would print out the emails and stuff. But I, I had we, people would send us letters, and uh, and I would I would I would take that stuff, you know, and I, I would open it up and all that. But like so many of those letters were, Apple needs to learn how to do marketing better. Apple needs to sell itself better. Why is Apple not making it clear how much better the Mac is? Why? And it was like that was after the Think Different campaign. They never said that again. But that that was a common refrain during this pre-Jobs era. And that, to me, is one of the biggest impressions that was made by the clone makers and by Power in particular, is Power just had this kind of balls-to-the-walls marketing where they're like, yeah. we're the Mac, we're proud, we're the, the famous, the, we're fighting back for Mac. Like, they showed aggressive marketing at a period where Apple's marketing was just sedate and boring. Yeah, totally. And they spoke to the enthusiast crowd who really was buying the Mac because they love the Mac. Part of where Apple really got into trouble, where the clone situation made their finances worse, is that Apple's, uh, as I recall, I don't have their numbers in front of me, but as I recall, they didn't just sell higher-end computers for more money. They also charged significantly higher margins for them. And so what Apple was kind of left with was they were left with all the low-end consumer computers that were – and it sold in greater quantity but were low margin. And all of the high margin stuff that sort of uh, – within the niche that the Mac was, the niche within the niche of the high-end professional user, they're the ones who were most likely to go to the clones. And I think Apple, maybe if there was a strategy in place, sort of thought the opposite was going to happen where they thought we're Apple and we've got the brand – so we'll keep all the high end and we'll let these clone makers take over the low end of the market where it's, eh, this isn't that great anyway. We're not even making money on it. And the opposite happened. They lost all of their most profitable you know, customers who yeah. were had the money and knew what they were doing and actually had the professional need to buy the highest end machines. And they were like, they knew exactly what they were doing. And they were like, well, this is a 68040 running at whatever megahertz. I'd get a faster computer for $2,000 less from this other company. Mm-hmm. And they were ugly. I mean, they were beige boxes. Yep. I've got a, I got a, another part of this project. I did buy a, uh, a power computing system on eBay, and it's a uh, but ugly. It is a beige. It is the beigest of beige boxes. It is like a. You might as well have like a Dell from this period. It is it, completely boring. They they were in Texas. There were a bunch of people who worked at Dell. They used sort of Dell's uh, manufacturing yep. technique. So, th- it, but the thing is, it's not like the Macs were. Right. Any less boring. They were a little more gray and a little less beige, but they were super boring at the same time. Yeah, so, it wasn't. It wasn't like you were getting a more fun. So who cares? Yeah, yeah. who cares? Everybody yeah. wanted to put them all under their desk anyway. Yeah, exactly, because they were shameful. I will say, um, according to Mike Rosenfeld, uh, Power was. They say the first you could call Dell as a business buyer. You could call Dell and order a computer with a particular configuration, but Power. Claims to be at least, and I have no way of verifying this, the first computer company ever to let you configure your order on the web. Mm. That he he saw them demo their their web guys demo that, and he was like, "Now do it now. Let's let's do it." And I remember when I ordered mine that I configured it on the web, and it was uh, it was kind of an out of body experience. It's like I can just, and now it's commonplace. That's that's how you do it. But they were the first, so you know. I, I I like I like how scrappy they were. I like yeah. how scrappy they were, and it showed how complacent Apple was. Like when Jobs came back, he's like, "We none of it made sense anymore because he needed to save the company," and like none of it made sense. But in that pre-Jobs era, like Apple just wasn't cutting it. Yeah, and you know, it it did. I it was a bad decision, but it was in some ways an honest decision where the the part that was left that was really worth saving was the software platform. And yeah. the hardware side wasn't that they, they, they really had lost their way more, you know, price per, per, per performance, that industrial design, there was nothing, no part of the hardware side that was really like, well, this is still great. And I love it. It was all about the software. Yeah. 
and that if you're going to kill the clones, there is an almost implicit promise there of almost explicit. I think it is implicit. Uh, we're going to do this and, and we're going to be the only hardware designer for the Mac and we're going to do better. Right. I think that was part of the promise of killing the clones was we're not going to make you go back to performas and quadras like, or, yeah. and power and beige power Mac G3, right? Like we're going to, and they did like they, they, if they had killed the clones and then never done anything that was more interesting on the hardware side, it would be such a graver offense than it turned out to be because they did, do yeah. good hardware after that yeah they did right by the company and they did right by their users yeah all right the imac g4 which you know is i think from a just a purely like iconic design standpoint it is one of the greatest computer designs ever with the chrome arm and the floating display and the little yeah, I don't know, sawed off half a volleyball <laughs> that's down at the base. It is a beautiful, looks like Luxo Jr. kind of from Pixar. Uh, it's a it's a beautiful computer and a tough follow-up, right? C- given how big the iMac was, how do you follow that up? And then you get this thing, which was uh, an incredible, I have one sitting on a shelf in my office and like, it's like a, it's like a piece of art. It's beautiful. Yeah, we, um, we had one. My wife had it. It was she had a. We I, I, we always called it grape, but the purple G three iMac. And then her next computer, five four five years later, was one of these. Um, mm-hmm. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. And I, you know, I forget why it was just off cycle for me to get one. Um, I thought it was great. I was like, man, this is just a really great computer. Yeah, kind of. I wonder about the lessons of the of the cube or or parallel. Like this one was a super dense computer, like the cube was, but it had the Chrome arm and the. They were swinging for the fences in this era, and and we'll talk about the cube in a second. Sometimes they didn't connect, but this one this one connected like just every bit about it. I hope they do. I would like them to consider doing something like this today. Of course, all of our displays are huge and heavy, and it would be hard to have it float. But I I. I'm intrigued by the idea of uncoupling the screen from the computer again and letting it kind of be more adjustable and float around. And if they're going to ever make a, an iMac that you can touch or write on with an Apple pencil, I don't see how they can't do something like this because otherwise you're writing up against a screen that's vertical yeah. and doesn't make any sense. Wasn't this, wasn't that how it was introduced? Wasn't Johnny Ives voiceover video sort of like when we, in a, in a, you know, it's the first iMac with a, uh, LCD screen, LED. Yeah. I always get the initials. Small. Yeah, with a with a with a no with a LCD screen or with a flat screen, and they talk about yeah. how it, like it floats. Yeah, and it, it is it is what is the natural characteristic of a screen like that is for it to be thin and light, and right. and if you can do that, then I mean it is that's why it's such a brilliant piece of design, right? It's like we have yeah. a light this thin light screen. It's the first flat screen uh, iMac. Why don't we lean into that? And they did. Right. And they did a beautiful job. And but it was sort of like the it was like where what can we do with these type of screens and everybody else is thinking well we'll just put the computer behind it too and no that's not great we should let it float and yet this design didn't last for long and yeah. the iMac that as we know it today has lasted for a very long time mm-hmm. I guess it's probably the longest standing iMac design is the current one yeah for and sure. what is it it's a screen with a computer glommed that's on behind it. it. Yep. But in defense of it, like as you alluded to just a few moments ago, it's hard to imagine a 27-inch display floating no matter how little else you put behind yep. it. It it just seems like the screen itself, when it gets to a certain size, like something about a 17-inch display is floatable when a 27-inch isn't. Yeah, but well, it, I mean, if you've seen the Surface Studio, right, like it's got two big arms that yeah. come up and prop it up. And like it's very impressive, and it's an interesting bit of – industrial design and engineering but yeah they got to do a lot more work to keep that thing afloat. Uh, and and adjustable is still a good word and has a good connotation and the surface is adjustable but nobody describes it as floating right right it kind of goes it, it kind of has an up position and a and a down position and you can pivot it through whatever that range of motion is but that's it yeah and the other thing about the industrial design is it 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 is such an interesting language and it didn't last long. And Apple really with the Mac, when, once they got to aluminum, I mean, and you know, 
it was titanium with the G4 PowerBook first, and titanium didn't really last long, and aluminum really, language-wise, was just a better material than titanium for what is clearly the same idea. Uh, and then they just kind of went out with it, aluminum to everything, and everything is you know just honest metal. But this sort of white iPod-y sphere is... It's not as color. It's certainly not. It's not colorful at all. It's white, all. but yeah. it. But yet, it's you know, it's not. Uh, you wouldn't use words like masculine or feminine. It's not childish, but it's not severe. It it is a certain. There's a just a pure friendliness to the language of it. Um, that just isn't something that was part of the technology landscape. Period until Jobs and and Johnny Ive really, you know, put the pedal to the metal on their ID team. Yeah, and you've got the iPod, and you've got this iMac, and you've got the white uh, polycarbonate iBook, right? This was the, you know, like, let's just take it back to to nothing almost. It's just these these kind of white objects. And then you're right, then they went to sort of metal as the, as the primary kind of yeah. going forward, that that was even more. I think it, Johnny Ive would probably say something like, uh, white was nice, but it was plastic. And once yeah. you could do metal, like metal was purer, right? Even though the white was a good look, it wasn't a good material. Yeah, maybe compared to the to the the metal. Yeah. Um. So Power Mac G4 Cube, like obvious Steve Jobs product. He obviously loved it. Um. It it's a great. I was saying to Christina Warren earlier, if design is how it how it looks, this is a, a triumph of design. And if design is how it how it works, this is a failure because it failed in so many different ways. And yet I love the ambition of it. It's such a cool product, even though it failed so severely that they killed it in a year, right? Like it didn't linger. It was just gone. But yet it is it's I think it's admirable in a lot of ways for what it tried to do. Is it Steve Jobs' last failure? Maybe? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I keep saying, like, people have forgiven a lot of the failures. They don't yeah. remember those failures of, like, the X-Serve, which was a flop. And I know it stuck around, but, like, it, they, they were ambitious when they launched it, and then it just didn't do it, and then they killed it. And this is, this is I mean, I think this is his biggest flop outside of maybe some online service stuff, yeah. but biggest hardware flop. I think so. I think it has to be right because he obviously this was obviously motivated by him and he was so proud of it and like in a year it was just it's gone didn't work well uh, so many of his failures were getting ahead of himself yeah getting is letting the team get ahead of it I mean the whole next era was they were too too far ahead of themselves right and they were selling these ten thousand dollar workstations in a market to to a to what should have been an audience that had two, three, four thousand dollars to spend. Right. And they got rid of the floppy drive and had this optical drive, which was so much more elegant, but optical drives weren't and optical drives were the future, but they weren't there yet in nineteen eighty nine or ninety. They just weren't there. Um and the G four cube was ahead of itself. And I've my my die on a hill argument with the G four cube is that the idea was sound but it should have been the G3 cube. Mm-hmm. And that would have solved two things. It would have made it a lot less expensive. Yep. And it would have kept it cooler. Yeah. And the cooling was part of the problem. You know, mm-hmm. like the cracks and stuff like that came from the fact that they had tried to have this neat cylindrical uh, tunnel of air going through the top and bottom. Um, would have solved two problems. And... I've made this argument and people have said, well, but then it would have been too slow. Well, the G3 wasn't too slow. The G3 was a tremendously successful uh, CPU line for Apple through that whole era. It just would have meant that the first cube wouldn't have been that fast. And then they could have gone from there. And if it had been a success in the market, it would have inevitably gotten faster over time and eventually you know would have i guess gotten the g4 and if it had stayed in the lineup would have gotten intel chips and you know maybe it sort of would have shrunk and we'd end up with the mac mini anyway but something like that wasn't a failed idea it was just too much and compare and contrast my compare and contrast is with the first macbook air 
which was way thinner and lighter than anything, any laptop we'd seen before. And famously was pulled out of an envelope. But the one thing it wasn't is it wasn't fast. You got to, so pick one thing, right? So if you're going to make this cube, the one thing to pick to make radical is the size and the industrial design. And you've got this unbelievable little cube computer which was so small compared to everything else and looked like you know and apple still gives out the apple design awards which are cubes it's like it's still it looks less like a computer and more like an award apple would give you (laughs) so the one thing pick one thing for the first one and it would be that design and then you know making it a high-end performing device would be something for a future generation they tried to do too much at once and make it uh, both both a state-of-the-art g4 workstation and give it this amazing design and i feel like that's you know and that made it too expensive and too hot i'm sure there are marketing reasons for it but I, i would actually go further than you and say also calling it a power mac was mm-hmm. probably a mistake, right? Like if, yeah. if you make it, especially if you make it a G3, like you have an iMac, you have a Power Mac. What's this? It's something else. Call it the Cube. Call it the yeah. Mac Cube. The, the Mac call Cube, it, yeah. Right? And then, but, and, and then yeah. you could make it faster without changing the name. You could, And it wouldn't be judged as a Power Mac, right? Right. right. It's not. It's right. The point of it is, I don't know, I feel like this is Steve Jobs' 20th anniversary Mac to a certain extent. Right. And... I don't know how much, I mean, that was a Gil Emilio ego trip. I don't know how much of this was an ego trip for Jobs, although a little bit, it feels like it was a real favorite of his, and maybe it shipped when it shouldn't because Jobs was so excited about it. But both of them are examples of tech that was not wrong in terms of the ideas, but as an as execution, um, a misfire, and probably because it was too soon. Like the the stuff that they tried to stick in the 20th anniversary Mac too was like they weren't wrong, but it was not the right time to do it. And the G4 Cube is more refined than than the the Tam, of course. But right. the, there's it's similar where you got a really proud CEO and a product that is not really ready, and it should have been the CEO's job to say we can't ship this. I just can't. I- just compare it to the MacBook Air, which wound up being tremendously successful, but didn't yeah. debut as a success no, because it first, was so mm-mm. slow. Yeah, and, that first and, that first generation of them was, as somebody who owned one and used it, was not very good. Right. <laughs> the uh, second time they got second cut, they got it right, so it was good enough to stay alive for them to do a, a second take on it. It's also the Cube is also probably the least successful technology product ever that's made its way into the Museum of Modern Art. <laughs> It's an amazing object, right? It is beautiful. Although, keep in mind, you got to attach it, and then there's like a big power brick that you have yeah. to hide behind your desk <laughs> and stuff. But it does look great. It is amazing. They did get away eventually. They they I don't think they were proud of that, but they eventually got away with hiding power bricks. Yeah, but that was one of the last ones. The the uh, it had the touch sensitive thing too, because yeah. you know Jobs didn't want a button, and that thing like that sensor got mis mistouched all the time, and because it was the sleep wake button like you would accidentally put your computer to sleep when you were putting in a disc or you'd wait you'd you'd start it up when you were dusting or whatever it's like oh wow i get it it was cool but not practical yeah and in the real world people have a thousand different desk configurations you know of shelves over their computer you know like there were i just remember hearing stories about people just reaching for a book and you know their forearm it would hit the button because they were reaching over this cube Ouch. The original iBook is an interesting product. Um, in a sense, that you talked about the, the MacBook Air. This is a product that did not repeat. Like, it got a second mm. rev and some new colors and stuff, but, like, it was, it was not... It didn't look like a traditional laptop, and... It was a it was the consumer laptop box, which Apple didn't make a specifically for consumers laptop. This is clearly designed for consumers. Bright colors, kind of funny looking, but fun. And um, and the, also the first Wi-Fi Mac, essentially, they used the iBook to launch the 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 airport based. Yeah, yeah, that was it was the Steve the uh, Phil Schiller demo. Yep, hardware. taking a taking a jump off of a high place, or is it, will this man survive? Right. Um, yeah, and I, I you know, and it was interesting. In addition to bringing that language forward, it. it it was sort of a statement that there even should be an uh, a Mac in that quadrant, you know, that right. 
that a portable, a truly portable laptop at a consumer price with a consumer design language was something that Apple felt like had a bright future ahead. And I don't think that that was clear industry wide. You know, I think that, you know, the idea was, you know, oh, well, kids, you know, will use a computer at home or in school and you can just anchor it to a computer lab and plug it in the wall. Laptops were a super expensive premium thing for professionals. You know, I, I think the rest of the market, they might have had, there might have already been in the PC world a sort of race to the bottom pricing wise, but it wasn't really in terms of like, selling it to consumers and thinking how do you you know what are the design changes you make in addition to just a price point to make it consumer friendly and yeah, clearly I, in hindsight that was the entire future of consumer yeah computing. yeah that that's what struck me about it is that i think i think the truth is there was not really the consumer laptop that uh, consumer laptop market that apple envisioned and that the truth was that what made the laptop consumer was that it was lower end and cheaper because laptops were so expensive and there were plenty of business people and businesses in general that wanted to buy cheaper laptops and they were not going to buy this iBook, right? Like they right. were not going to buy it because it's the most portable. You, This is the thing you have to take out to a meeting and right. you're going to take this like, so I, I like the premise. I really like it. I think it's kind of fun, but I think what the what has been proven right is that you know, everybody, I don't know if there are kids' laptops per se either. It's sort of like, well, look, they're laptops and people buy them and they all look like this. And Apple was like, no, there's a special kind of laptop just for regular people. And it was a fun idea, but it didn't pan out. Like they needed to make a laptop that was cheaper. And they did that with the iBook, with the polycarbonate iBook, but it was not something that you'd look at weirdly in a meeting or something it was still just a laptop yeah and i think it's it's a combination of several factors where part of it is maybe the pent up design chops of johnny ive and his whole team breaking out of the beige uh, rudderless rudderless leadership of the pre-jobs apple wanting to just exercise what they can do and you know here it's exuberance right and maybe also just that even without that, even if Apple had been under better leadership throughout the 90s, it was still so novel that people outside the computing enthusiast market wanted and were using computers, right? There was the, the, the whole computer for the rest of us idea was true, but they were, it, it wasn't, it was the internet that made it. It was finally like, you know, there were so many people who were computer enthusiasts through the 80s and the early 90s who were just like street corner lunatics telling their friends and family, you should get into computers. They're awesome. They're so much fun. You could do these amazing things. And people are like, eh, what, what do you do besides games? Uh, I don't know. And then the internet, it turns out human communication, that's it. That we That's it. and 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 then the light bulb went off. Everybody wanted it, and now you know. In addition to all the software problems to be served to to bring computers to the masses, was what do we do design wise? Right? What do we do to to show somebody this is a computer for you? You know, and it definitely didn't look like something somebody who wore a suit would bring out in a business meeting. All right, this is your opportunity to say why the SE30 is great. <laughs> no, wait, did some... you add this? I thought you skipped the SE30 or I something. Did, I right? did not. I, I have the SE and the SE30 together in one, but I know that there are, when we asked like people, whatever, a decade ago about the greatest Mac ever, that so many people said um, from that this era said the SE30. Um, but I love the... I never really got to use an SE30, but I love the SE, which was my first Mac. But... Um, and I had Christina Warren ask me, what's the deal? Why did people love, why do people love the SE 30? And I, I have some theories like, you know, it was all, it was a Mac two power in an SE 30s body. And so like, it was a Mac that looked like a Mac, but you could do anything cause it was an O 30 and it had video out right. and like you could do, and you know, it cost a fortune, but if you were lucky enough to have one because you had the money or because you were in an institution that bought them, um, they were, you know, I remember the only time I ever used one, I sat down at an SE30 not realizing what it was, and I clicked. I did something. I don't even know what in the interface. And I had that immediate visceral reaction of like, oh, oh God, what happened? Because it was so fast. Right. It was like, 
oh, this is an SE30, not an SE, because I had the SE. And I was like, yeah. I, I see, because it was so much better. Yeah, there, it, the latency difference, it, it's, it, you know, iPhones and iPads, everything we get still gets faster year after year. And they've, you know, that's just the nature of the industry. But at that time, getting faster generation to generation would have profound effects on just the experience. And the to me, the SE30 was, this is what the original classic Mac was meant to be all along. And then they never topped it again. And yeah, then the 90s came and color became a thing and displays got bigger. Um, but at the time when the SE30 reigned, even though there were color capabilities in the Mac 2 line, the software just wasn't there for it. And if you really needed to do something that had to be in color, sure. You know, if you were doing Photoshop work on color photography, yeah, an SE30 without an external display that could drive, that could be driven in color wasn't going to help you much. But so much else of what you did on the Mac was still best or as good in black and white um, as it was in color. And I, I learned the hard way. I when I went to college in 1991, there were three options. It was the uh, the classic Mac Classic, the Mac LC, and the SE30 were the three options for freshmen in 1991 at Drexel oh. University. And I picked the LC because I wanted color and I was more, I knew the Mac a little, but I was still coming from an Apple II background and I just thought, well, color is better and it's cheaper. It was an easier sell for my parents. And then what if they were willing, maybe if I could have talked them into getting me the SE30, I could get them to spend that money on something else for my computer. Uh, and I regretted it. I regretted it terribly because then once I really got it, it just completely soaked myself in the Mac and learned everything about it. I realized I'd made a terrible decision. And because everything I liked about the LC was better on the SE30 except for the color and the color didn't matter that much. And yeah. even the best games still, because there were so many black and white Macs in use, they were all, um, they all had black and white mode that was just as good or, you know, almost as good. I mean, the SE30 cost almost twice as much right. as the LC, but um, the LC is not on my list. Let's just no. put it that way. No. Uh, <laughs> it's not. Mm-mm. But the SE30, yeah. I mean, it, it's remarkable. And I had the SE, and I loved it, too. And, like, I, 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 it was the first um, iteration of the classic Mac design after the 128 and the 512. And that was, you know, internal hard drive was available, and they had the, the uh, FDHD, right, the higher capacity floppy drive. And that was my first Mac that I worked on was an SE with a, an external uh, full page monitor. And then my at the newspaper in college. And then that's the one I bought was the SE right before the classic came out, like six months before the classic came out, they were starting to discount them. And through my university bookstore, I bought one and like, I loved it. And it was, it is that classic Mac, grab it by the handle, you know, yeah. carry it around with you. Uh, it's, it's love it. So much of computing for that whole era was that, the interface ideas just could not keep or, or hardware just couldn't keep up with the interface ideas and yeah, everything sure. was just a little slow, everything. Yep. And at the time, because everything was moving to color and bigger screens and, you know, a nine inch display at 72 pixels per inch is just not a lot of, not a lot of pixels and not a big canvas to work yeah. on. Um, the SE30 was the one that got ahead of the interface because yep. it was a nine inch black and white, not grayscale display with only 512 by 384 pixels, uh, with a v- internal video power that was way more, way, way more powerful than that display needed because right. it had the internal video capabilities to drive an external color display. Exactly. And so. Everything in the interface was so snappy. It was like, finally, the Mac interface is completely instantaneous. Yep. And you'd use an SE30 and then go to any other Mac, and it was it was painful. It was like, all of a sudden, it felt like you'd, you, know, you had like chewing gum on your mouse or something. That's like, how I, I felt when I would stop using the 2FX in the college newspaper office. It was like, the 2FX, you're like, oh. Everything is instant, and then you get back to the other computers. Like, oh, I'll wait for that menu well, to drop down. Why do the men, why are the menus so slow? What is oh. going on here? Yeah, yeah, I think that's the core of it. I, you know, there's nostalgia involved too. But the, like the the one twenty eight and the five twelve are great historically. 
But I, yeah. I feel like the Mac really kind of started taking off and like could fly with the SE because it was like, and the Mac too, but like the SE was like, okay, we, we did this for a little while and we figured out how to make a better version of the original Mac and here it is. And it was, yeah, it was platinum. It had the different look that that's what the snow white kind of design language, but like, I don't know. It also, that was the one that hit me. It That was the one I fell in love with. So it's always going to be high on my list. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. And it just, it, it, the other thing about it was it, it, it just spanned the older eighties into the nineties in a great way. And, you know, maybe I'm just looking at the numbers and I see the eighties and the nineties as different decades, but they were, they just kind of, the decades just sort of worked out as two eras and it really did. It, it was just the most amazing eighties Mac ever. And then in, as the nineties grew, it held its credibility for a long time. And so it really was more of an investment, you know, four or $5,000 or whatever the heck it cost for a rigged out one. And, you know, when it was new, you'd expect that to last for a long time. And yeah. it did. It was a totally credible computer that would last through the system seven era for a while and serve you very well. Our, the, the, uh, MacUser.com email was served by a uh, Mac SE 30 and mm. stuff on Samoji's office until basically until um, either we got shut down or until they, as if Davis finally decided that they should have email on the internet. Like, but that domain was just served in, in the SA 30. That was one of my introductions to it. It was like, yeah. it just sat in the corner and could handle anything you could throw at it. It was the best. We, we had one at the Drexel triangle, the student newspaper right. that, uh, it, it, I forget how much stuff we did, but it wasn't because it had such a small screen. We didn't really use it for layout anymore. And so nobody did anything really production on it, but it, people could sit at it. And if they needed, somebody just needed to do editing on an article, they could do it on it. But we also sure. hooked it up to, we had this crazy thing to get the AP newswire and it wasn't over IP. It was. <laughs> It was to get the Associated Press at the time. It was like an, some kind of teletype type thing yep. that we paid and had a thing that would transfer to a serial port and come in and it just run all the time. And it was always running and it was always where we got our AP stories from. And it also served, didn't serve email for us, but it served some other things. And they all yep. just ran in the background because it was like a maxed out SE30. And in a pinch, somebody could just open up MacWrite on it and write an article. And sure. and you'd never know that all that stuff was running in the background. And when you compare it to any other Mac that looked like that, that in that classic form factor with a black and white screen, the idea that you were doing all that in the background, nuts. Yeah. I really enjoyed your um, episode of Anthony's podcast, and I liked all the college newspaper stories because mm. we, we're a couple years separate, but and and East Coast West Coast. But oh boy, the stories are so similar; it's hilarious. Um, so I love hearing those old college newspaper and right out of college stories. So that was a lot of fun. Oh, and it was, it was so important to be snappy. That was what Quark, the whole thing with Quark Express. It was like, yeah. how is this app doing so much? How is it doing so much? And it's still so responsive. Yeah, that we used PageMaker at my college paper, but it was, I mean, that was the, the in PageMaker, what you did is you did a, it was like a, a command click. Yeah. Took you to 100%. Hmm. And then it had to draw. Right. So you're on you're on a full page radius display or you're on a two page display on our Mac two that we had and you do command click and then it has to draw everything and it's got to draw the text because it might have been Greeked when you were zoomed out. Right. Right. But now you're zoomed in at 100 percent. And to me, that was like the ultimate. That was the acid test. And on a fast computer, on like a two FX or a two, even on a two CX, you, you do that command click and it would just go like. Yeah. And on the SE did not do that. <laughs> you could, you, you could, could just watch see it filling each in. text frame right, fill right, in very slowly. Right. Oh, and we had a bunch. We had um, artists at the UCSD paper who who it was really ahead of their time. A um, bunch of student artists who did their illustrations in Adobe Illustrator, which was great. Those are EPS illustrations, and depending on how they were saved, if they had a preview. <laughs> PageMaker would be like, I'm going to draw the vector. And so you'd, you'd uh, unless you set the display preferences to gray it out or, right. or had them save it with a preview, you would sit there and watch every single stroke of their illustration draw in very slowly. It was yeah. painful. 
Yeah. And it was true of photographs too, where you'd really, you would want to get oh, the photograph, wow, yeah. zoom it, place it in the box, and then immediately, I don't know if we called it, it was Greek text, but I don't know yeah, what we called it when you'd gray out a photograph. But gray, it's like, I think we just said gray out a photograph right, is what it was. Right. Yeah. I, when we started scanning photos, because for the longest time, we only started scanning photos about my last year at the paper or maybe my, you know, maybe late in my junior year. Um, because before that we just, we had a stat camera in the back, so we would just shoot all the photos and paste them in. We'd print out the pages, but then we would paste down the photos. Yeah. yeah. But, I, but we got a scanner and I was like, I'm going to use the scanner and I can half tone it and all of that. And they looked okay. They didn't look as good as the stat camera, but they were, but yeah, th- there's that moment where it has to hit the disc to load the image or the proxy image. And you're like, Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good times. Uh, well, this is great. There's one more set of these for the top five. So okay. I'll come back to you. Okay. In a month, month and a half, and we'll 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 do the top five. All right. I love the I love the series. It's so great. It's fun. I'm glad you like it. It's yeah. uh, you know, I don't know. It was it was a lot easier when it was just ten essays. Yeah. Now it's ten essays and ten videos and ten podcasts, and it's a lot. But or twenty twenty essays yeah. and videos and podcasts. So I've gone from twenty to sixty. But yeah, it's uh, fine. And the production values are just amazing. It's Thank really, you. Yeah. Really, it's really, been fun. It shows. It's, been, it's it's like my my ears have perked up to quality podcast production, and it's like, hey, this is really tight. This is good. I, every yeah. single one so far, I'm like, this is everything that I feel really. Not everything. It's not Wikipedia, but it's like, yeah, this is this is this is exactly the right length. This 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 Mac needs eleven minutes. Yeah. It's nice because I don't, I just go in and I do it and I have no idea until I export it what the length is going to be. But it's turned because I did the first one and it was like 24 minutes. And Mike yeah. Hurley was like, Are they all going to be 25 minutes? And I said, I don't think so. <laughs> and then the next three that I did were all 16, 15 minutes. And again, yeah. I'm not trying to hit a time. And I was like, Okay, I think I found it. I think I found yeah. the time that these are going to be, which is, and, and one of them might be six minutes long. I don't know. Right. I, I mean, right. I, I really don't. And that's the beauty of it. Uh, being what it is is that I just I don't care I just yeah. want it to be whatever the story requires and then I can yep. step out of there so alright I'll send this in about five minutes thank you talk to you All later right. bye bye